Praise the Lord. Well, we want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 4 this evening. We're going through the Gospel of John. And uh, the fourth chapter of John has really two two main um, events, things uh, that are re- reflected in the fourth chapter. It's kind of a long chapter, but really just two things. One is uh, Jesus dealing with the woman at the well of Samaria. And the other is the healing of the nobleman's son. So we want to start in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Let me remind you while you're turning there that uh, at the point in time this is written, it's probably written in about 93 or 94 A.D. So at the time this is written, there is no nation of Israel. It was um, conquered. Uh, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So for the last 22, 23, 24 years, somewhere around there, there has been no nation of Israel. There has been no temple. There has been no sacrifice. There's been no priesthood. So when John writes these things, it's the last of the... Uh, uh, the letters to the church with the exception of the book of Revelation that John also wrote about the same time or maybe a little bit after. All the other uh, letters have been written. Paul has written all of his letters. He's uh, already been killed. Peter's written his letters. He's already been killed. All the four Gospels are uh, are in place and, and everybody is aware of them. Um, Christians worldwide, or meaning that part of the world, uh, have uh, been made aware and, and read these things perhaps several times. Uh, these things are these uh, letters, the gospels, and the epistles are preached in churches and uh, uh, meetings, congregations uh, throughout that part of the world. So John writes a letter to give us a personal account of his time with Jesus, and he gives us information that none of the other gospel writers do. It's almost like he's filling in the blanks. There are a couple of things that uh, that he mentions that some of the other writers mention, but by and large, the things that he uh, that he gives us an account of are different from any of the, of the other gospel writers. It's kind of like John lets everybody else do their thing, and then he says, all right, now let me tell you what it was really like from this point of view. The theme of the book of John is that uh, Jesus was the Son of God. And uh, tonight I want to start with chapter 4. Jesus has uh, just talked to Nicodemus. Chapter 3 was primarily Jesus talking to Nicodemus. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go, perhaps. Chapter 4, verse 1, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Now, this refers back to chapter 3 and verse 26, 25 and 26, where it says that there arose a dispute uh, between uh, John's disciples and the Jews, that means the religious leaders, about uh, purification. They came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. So this is in reference to that. It shows the jealousy of the Jews. Now back to chapter 4, it says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though, verse 2, Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. Now this is uh, this is important to recognize because a couple of statements just real briefly. One is Jesus knew the, the jealousy of the Jews. Now, the Jews had a hard time with Jesus because he was a carpenter's son. John the Baptist wasn't their favorite, but at least he was the son of one of the priests. His father, John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was one of the priests. And you remember the story about how the angel appeared and told about, foretold the birth of the child. And Zechariah, who was in the, the, uh, the synagogue, didn't believe it. And as a result, uh, he was struck dumb for the period of time that... Um, Elizabeth, John's mother, was pregnant and carried, carried John. And then when he was born, then uh, Zacharias got his, uh, got his voice back. So as much as the, the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders didn't like what John the Baptist was preaching, at least he was kind of one of them. He had the right stock. He, had, he was of the right pedigree. Jesus, however, was a, was a, a, a nobody. Jesus was the son of a carpenter. Now, carpenters in those days weren't specialized like they are now. We think of carpenters as being separate from other trades. Back then, a carpenter really just meant a house, uh, excuse me, a house builder. A carpenter in Jesus' day was just somebody that built houses, primarily from the ground up. I think that's appropriate as far as the work that Jesus did and does now as the head of the church. He's still building a house. So he's well equipped to do so. And so as a result, the Pharisees had a real problem with Jesus because of where he came from. He was from Nazareth, John chapter 7, verse 52, when Nicodemus finally speaks up for Jesus and, uh, and questions the Jewish leadership's intent toward Jesus. They put Nicodemus down and say, no prophet can come from Galilee. No prophet can come from Nazareth. So they didn't accept Jesus on any hand because of where he came from. So when the Jews show jealousy toward Jesus, notice Jesus leaves Judea. 
It says Jesus didn't do the baptizing, his disciples did in verse 2, which, by the way, tells us that baptism doesn't have much to do with salvation. Notice the the order it says in verse 1. It says Jesus made and baptized disciples, but he didn't do the baptizing himself. What does that mean? That means baptism is something that takes place as a show of what someone has already made a determination in their heart. In other words, the disciples were made first, and then the baptism came afterwards, but Jesus himself didn't even do that. So what did he do when he found out the Jews were so jealous? Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Now again, remember the big picture from this book. John is trying to tell us things about Jesus that the other gospel writers either didn't, didn't tell us, or he's trying to make clear certain things that, uh, that, that were not as clear or were not pointed out in the other gospel accounts. Now, all three of the other gospel accounts are, are kind of split in half. What I mean by that is half of the book, the first half of the book is Jesus ministering to the Jews, and then he goes to the Gentiles. John's gospel is not like that. John's gospel, and again, remember, he's 92, 93, 94 A.D. There is no nation of Israel anymore. There are no Jewish people that he has to be concerned about that are trying to tear up the gospel. What Paul's problem was when he was in ministry, John didn't even have to deal with in the latter days of his life. And as such, he's not talking about how Jesus was sent to the Jews, although he does make reference to a couple of things very briefly. He speaks about Jesus being sent to save the world. Because now the Jews are not a problem. They're not an issue. There is no nation of Israel. So who cares where Jesus was first sent at this point in time to the Gentiles that are going to be reading the letter? So he says he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. You need to know that Galilee is is considered the Gentile territory. We don't uh, usually think of that. We usually think of it as part of Israel, and, and it was part of the nation of Israel, but it was not inhabited by Jews. Let me read to you something from Matthew chapter 4, verse... Uh, 15, we'll read, we'll come back and read some of this later as to why he did some of the things he did. But Matthew chapter 4 and verse 15, it says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, and notice this phrase, Galilee of the Gentiles. So Galilee was Gentile territory. And that's what chapter 4 is all about. It's Jesus among the Gentiles. Up until this point, John has told us a few things about Jesus among the Jews. It told us about the miracles that he did at the feast. It told us about Nicodemus, who was one of the ruler of the Jews, and how Jesus dealt with him. But now he's talking about Jesus among the Gentiles. And it all came about pretty early on in his ministry when Jesus found out that the Pharisees and, and the, the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, were jealous of him and, uh, and, and rejected him because of his background. Remember when Jesus sent his disciples out? He said, whoever receives you, do these things. Heal the sick that are in their cities and proclaim that the kingdom of God's come near to you. But he said, if they reject you, wipe the dust off of your feet against them. Well, now, why would Jesus tell his disciples to do something different than he did? That wouldn't make sense, would it? So when Jerusalem... And the Jews, particularly in Judea, rejected Jesus. He turned away from them. And he went to the Gentiles. Notice in verse 4, and he must needs go through Samaria. Samaria was, uh, um, well, Samaria was the, were the, the dreaded enemies of the Jews. Let me give you a little bit of the history of, uh, of Samaria, and then, uh, then you can uh, understand some of the things that are going on perhaps a little better. Uh, Samaria was a province allotted to Ephraim and Manasseh, the half-tribe of Manasseh. In, uh, in Joshua's day, after they took the promised land, it, it came to Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh were not two of the original 12 tribes of Israel. They were Joseph's sons. You remember, Joseph had got a double portion. His children, Ephraim and Manasseh, each got an inheritance from, uh, from Israel's possession once they took the promised land. Now, the reason that Ephraim and Manasseh got this, this area, well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me tell you a little bit more about, uh, about Samaria. In, um, uh, in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 12, you remember when uh, the kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah? That came about in, uh, in Solomon's son's day. Solomon's son was named Rehoboam. And uh, when Solomon died, then Rehoboam is going to take over being king of Israel. Solomon, Solomon although he had the, the most successful reign and long-lasting peace of anybody that we have record of in uh, uh, Jewish history, he was real tough on the people. There were high taxes, and, and uh, he constricted uh, the people into service, uh, his own service and into military service. And so when Rehoboam comes along, the people are wanting to break. 
And so the advisors, the older advisors are telling Rehoboam, don't be hard on the people. If you want to gain the hearts of the people, come out and say, look, my father did a good thing. And, and, uh, and as a result, we're enjoying peace and prosperity. But now we're going to ease up on everybody. But instead, Rehoboam listened to the younger advisors. Young people don't generally know too much, even though they think they do. And, uh, and he came out and he said, I'm going to be harder on you than my daddy ever was. Well, the kingdom divided. Now, the northern kingdom, uh, they chose for themselves a king named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was one of the servants of Solomon. He was one that Solomon put in great position, and uh, and he was uh, head of all of the, the well, the, the, Bible, the way the scripture says, uh, Solomon put him in charge of all of Joseph's house, and so he had he had great responsibility. But uh, the prophet had appeared to Jeroboam privately and told him about this tearing. He tore a, a garment that Jeroboam was wearing and told him about this uh, dividing of the tribes of Israel. So when that took place, Jeroboam takes ten, literally ten and a half tribes. They went with the northern kingdom. Rehoboam was king over one and a half tribes known as uh, Judah. And Jeroboam almost immediately started idol worship. And as a result, the people followed him in. They, they did what he said. They, they followed his example of worshiping idols. And as a result, over a period of time, you remember that the Assyrians came and, and captured the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the ten and a half tribes of the northern kingdom, and took them into captivity, and as a result, depopulated the land. Now, when that took place, the king of Assyria took people from all over the world, other nations that they'd captured and conquered and so forth, and settled them in these areas. And as a result, what happened at, uh, because of that is they wound up making their own religions. Their own religion was a mix of Judaism and idolatry from all different types of uh, countries and different gods and, and so forth. That was such a mishmash and, and, and hodgepodge of stuff that they didn't know who they were worshiping or why. They couldn't hardly keep up with things. Now, when the time came for Israel to be restored, you remember in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, it tells about how that, uh, that the people came back to build the second temple and to reestablish Jerusalem. The Samaritans wanted to make a pact with the Jews coming back. And Ezra chapter 4 says that the Jews rejected that. They rejected their offer and refused to enter into an agreement with them because they were idol worshipers. And because of that, the Samaritans became their most hated enemies of anybody else. They became the ones that opposed the building of the second temple more than anybody else. The the retaking or the rebuilding of Jerusalem as the capital city, they fought them harder on that than anything else. Now later on, in about 350 B.C., when Alexander the Great was uh, doing his conquering of the world stuff, uh, Josephus tells us that uh, there was a certain man named Manasseh. He was the king of the high priest of Israel, and he was going to be the next in line. He's going to be the next high priest. Well, he marries the chief of the Samaritan's daughter. And the Jews went crazy over that because the Samaritans are their hated en- enemies. So they um, they required of him one of two things. They said either you've got to renounce your wife or you've got to renounce your position as high priest. Well, he didn't want to do either one, so he went and ran into his father-in-law, who was the chief of the Samaritans, Sanballat is his name. Well, when he gets to his father-in-law, his father-in-law welcomes him with open arms. He realizes what a coup this is. So he welcomes him with open arms, petitions Alexander the Great, and with Alexander the Great's uh, approval, builds a temple to Jehovah on Mount Gerizim. And so now you've got two temples in operation. You've got the second temple at Jerusalem where they're worshiping at that temple where they're offering sacrifices. And then you've got the one that's the high priest supposed to be over in Jerusalem now in Mount Gerizim in Samaria offering sacrifices in a Greek god idol worship temple. Now, that's the reason why she asked later on, this woman at the well of Samaria, she asked later on, she says, where are we supposed to worship, in Jerusalem or in this mountain? Because there's two temples. Okay, everybody with me? All right. Then it says that Jesus must needs, verse 4, and he must needs go through Samaria. Folks, he didn't have to go through Samaria. There are three times that John uses the word must, and we've already seen them in our in our study already. The first time is in John chapter 3 and verse 7. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The second time is in John chapter 3 and verse 14, where he says the Son of Man must be lifted up. 
like Moses lifted up the, the serpent of brass in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, here's the third time where it says Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Now, what you need to know is that this is the most direct route from where Jesus was in Judea to where he's going in Galilee. But it's forbidden to go through Samaria. He's breaking the law of the Jews, not the law of Moses, but the law of the Jews by going into Samaria. They would take a circuitous route if they had to get from point A to point B so that they wouldn't go through Samaria. But Jesus, the Bible says, must needs go through Samaria. You're going to see why. It goes on in verse 5. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. The word Sychar means purchased. Near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now let's talk about Jacob and Joseph. In uh, Genesis chapter 48, it tells us that this place where Jesus was, this city of Sychar, this well of Jacob, is spoken of in two places. Once, first time in Genesis chapter 33, second time in Genesis chapter 48. The one I want you to see is Genesis chapter 48, because this is when Je- uh, Joseph is getting his father Jacob, who is also known as Israel, to bless his sons. And you remember the story about how he sets his sons in place so that his older son would be under uh, Jacob's right hand, his younger son would be under his left hand, but Jacob crosses his hands. And Joseph's tried to fix that. He's thinking, well, Dad, you know, he doesn't realize who's who. His eyesight's not any good. He doesn't realize who's who. And, and, And Jacob says, no, I'm doing it the way it's supposed to be. And as a result, this becomes the possession of the younger son, Manasseh, in that area. It belongs to both of them. Both of them are, you know, kind of co-joined territories, but it really becomes part of the younger son. And Jacob tells Joseph at the end of his life, Genesis chapter 50, uh, chapter 48, excuse me, in verse uh, 21 and 22. And Israel, that's Jacob, said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above your brethren. Now, this is the double portion. This is the, the birthright of the firstborn. This birthright of the firstborn should have been Reuben's, but Reuben uh, forfeited that because of the sin against Joseph and all the stuff that he did. So he said, and I give you a portion. I have given thee one portion above the brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. So what I want you to see here, folks, is this land, this city that's called Sychar, which means purchased. It was purchased by Jacob. Genesis chapter 33 tells us about that. It was purchased by Jacob, and it was given to Joseph. So God's got a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through Joseph, this land is something that God has a promise to his descendants, to Abraham's descendants about, even though they're enemies of the Jews. That's why it says Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. And there came a woman, there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, Jesus said unto her, give me to drink, for his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Now, folks, i gotta, I got to tell you, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but it, it, you really got to wonder if Jesus knew what was going to happen here. you got to wonder if Jesus knew ahead of time. We don't have any reason to think that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. For example, the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5, he didn't know who it was that touched him. He wasn't expecting anybody to touch him. He felt somebody touch him and power went out of him and into her because she touched him in faith. And he stops and he says, who touched me? Well, he didn't stop and say, where is that woman that touched me? He didn't stop and say, the woman has got the issue of blood for 12 years and spent all of her living on doctors. Where is she? I just felt her. I knew she was coming and I just felt her. We don't have any reason to think Jesus knew everything that was going to happen every day of his life. But you've got to wonder about this. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus gets to this place and sends his disciples away. Now, why would he send his disciples away without leaving him something to draw water with? Because he's there by himself. It says he's wearied. You can see the humanity of Jesus. John doesn't try to sugarcoat this. He doesn't try to paint Jesus as the Son of God who never got tired. It says Jesus was tired, and at midday, that means six hours. The sixth hour means midday. It means six hours after sunrise. It's about 12 noon. So he's sitting there at a time where most people would not be coming to the well. You don't come in the heat of the day. You come in the cool of the day so you don't have to struggle and do your work in the hottest part of the day. So Jesus is there by himself, and this woman shows up, and Jesus says, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? 
For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. I want you to notice something. Jesus looks at her and asks for something. Now, why does John tell us about these stories as he does? If we just assume, and we kind of used it as a general rule of thumb up to this point, but if we just assume that John's trying to fill in the blanks, why this one? Why is he telling us the things that he is in the way that he does? There's got to be a reason. There's a comparison between Jesus with Nicodemus and Jesus with the woman at the well. Now look at the comparison. The woman at the well is a nobody. Nicodemus was a somebody. The woman at the well was there at midday in broad daylight. Nicodemus came by night. Nicodemus is somebody that's supposed to know about the things of God because he's a ruler of the Jews. And so Jesus questions him according to the law. He talks to him about being born again. You must be born again. This woman, he's going to talk to her about the gift of God. He doesn't expect her to know anything. He reveals little by little by little who he is. Now, one thing that's interesting to me about this is that John's gospel tells us more about Jesus when he was alone than any of the other gospel writers or gospel accounts. We know of Jesus when he was alone with Nicodemus. We know Jesus when he was alone with the woman at the well of Samaria. We know Jesus when he was alone with the woman that was taken in adultery in John chapter 8. We know Jesus when he was alone with the guy whose eyes had been opened after he had been kicked out of the synagogue in John chapter 9. None of the other gospel writers tell us anything about Jesus being alone. It always tells us about Jesus with the disciples. It always tells us about Jesus with the multitudes. But John tells us who Jesus was individually. That's got to factor in with why he's telling us the information that he is and why he's giving us the stories that he is. He's shown us how Jesus tried to reach the Jews personally. Now he's showing us how Jesus is trying to reach the Gentiles personally. So he says, give me to drink. Her first question is, how is it that you're talking to me? Jews don't talk to Samaritans. She recognizes Jesus only as a Jew. She doesn't see him for anything else. There's no reason, I guess, for her to see him any other way. But she just says, how is it? Her question is, what are you talking to me for? Or how is it you're having any dealings with me? Jesus answered verse 10 and said, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. Now, folks, verse 10 is really important because I want you to understand. Jesus said, if you just knew who was talking to you, you wouldn't be listening to me ask you to give me to drink. You'd be asking me. Now, what this signifies is very simply this. The thing that causes people to fail or not get saved is that they don't know. Because if they only knew, then they would ask. You need to realize eternity for the unsaved is one asking away. That's how far away they are. No matter what they've done in their life, no matter what sins they've committed, no matter what the problems were, they are one ask away. We call it asking Jesus into our heart. That's all it takes. It's all it takes is somebody, no matter what they've done, no matter what their past is, no matter what their history is, to ask Jesus to come into their heart. Why don't they do that? If it's that easy, why don't they do that? Because they don't know. They don't know anything about the gift of God. They don't know anything about what belongs to them. They don't know what's available to them. They don't know. And that's the point Jesus is making. He doesn't put her down for it. He just simply says, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you would be asking me and I'd give you living water. Now, does that convince her? Nope. Verse 11, the woman said unto him, sir, thou hast nothing to draw with and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Her first question in in verse 9 was, how is it that you're talking to me? Her second question after hearing about the living water is, where are you going to get this living water? You don't have anything to draw draw from, and the well is deep. She's still thinking naturally. Jesus is talking about living water. She's saying, where are you going to get it? You can't get it out of this well. Where are you going to get this? Then she goes further and starts talking about her history. Now, folks, I want you to understand, we talk a lot about the Jews trying to rely on their history and Father Abraham and all that kind of stuff. The Samaritans were just as bad. Notice what she does. She said, art thou greater than our father Jacob? Didn't the Jews say, are you, aren't you greater, are you claiming to be greater than Abraham? What's the difference? None. Religious unsaved people are just the same as sinner unsaved people. They have the same approach to the things of God. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him 
shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said unto her, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now she's interested. She still doesn't understand. She's still thinking naturally, but she's interested. So Jesus questions. He doesn't put her down. He doesn't shoot her down with the, because of her questions. How is it that you're a Jew and talking to me? He doesn't even address that. He just says, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me for the living water. And then she says, well, where are you going to get this water? Jesus answers. He says, here's what that water is like. He didn't tell her where it comes from other than it'll come from the inside. He said, that well of water shall spring up into him. It'll be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. She says, oh, let me have that. I want that. That sounds good. So now what does Jesus do? Jesus addresses her conscience. Jesus said, go call your husband and come hither. Go call your husband and come hither. Up until this point, it's all just been doctrinal stuff. Now, folks, watch what happens when God deals with somebody's conscience. Watch what happens when conviction comes upon somebody. He tells her two things. He says, go get your husband. Number one. Number two, come back. Why? You don't have to have your husband or your wife or anybody else to get saved, do you? What's he doing? He's not concerned about her husband. He's dealing with her and her lifestyle. He's dealing with her according to that which she knows she's made such a mess of. He says, go call your husband and come back. Come hither. And she said, the woman said, answered and said, I have no husband. I have no husband. I wonder how hard that was for her to get out. I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not your husband, and that said thou truly. Now, folks, this is not really the point, but I want to, uh, I, you just can't cover this verse without making a couple of comments. First of all, you hear people in church circles that say God does not honor divorce. That's not true. If God didn't honor divorce, he would have said you had one husband and you've been sleeping with a bunch of other people since then. God honors divorce. He hates it. But he honors divorce, which means if he honors divorce, he honors, he honors remarriage. The second thing I want you to see in this is sleeping together or living together doesn't make you man and wife. He said, the guy you now have, in other words, the guy you're living with or sleeping with now, he's not your husband. So as far as God's concerned, living together doesn't mean marriage. You get a lot of Christians nowadays who are out there looking for themselves, looking to find themselves. And they say, well, God knows we're married in our heart. Give me a personal break. God knows you're living in sin and trying to call it marriage. Clearly, if Jesus knows anything about this subject which if he doesn't, who would? If Jesus knows anything about this, living together is not the same thing as being married. I knew that would excite you. Thank you very much for your amens. Now what happens? Verse 19, the woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now I want you to notice something about this. Jesus speaks to her conscience. He doesn't put her down. He just says, look, this is how it is. And he tells her something that nobody else could know. He speaks by the Holy Ghost, by the revelation of the Spirit. He says something that she knows there's no way he could know. And it seems to be the central point of her life, which if you put yourself in her position, how could it not be? If you start talking about the things of God, what's going to be her first thought? I've made such a mess of my life where marriages and divorces were concerned. How is she going to have any confidence toward God in any respect whatsoever, knowing her past and knowing her situation? Jesus knows that he's got to get to her in that which means the most to her. He's got to get her to face the circumstance as it is and show her that he's not condemning her for it. How many times have we heard people say, well, I'd love to come to God, but I've just done so many wrong things in my life. Isn't that the reason to come to God rather than the reason not to? But they think it's the reason that God won't accept them. That's what Jesus is saying. Once he deals with her conscience and she addresses it, then she starts to come to an understanding. 
She said, the woman said, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now, notice what happens when God addresses somebody in their conscience, when their conscience is convicted. Notice what happens. Immediately, they try to shift the attention to something else. What does she do? She says, our fathers say that that, uh, you should worship in this mountain, and, and the Jews say you should worship in Jerusalem. Which is the place to worship? What does that have to do with anything? Now, I want you to notice what's happened. She's asked three questions. First question is, what are you talking to me for? You're a Jew. Second question is, where are you going to get this living water? Now the third question, after her conscience is pricked, now her third question is, hey, where are we supposed to worship? we got a temple here in Mount Gerizim. You've got a temple in Jerusalem. Where are you supposed to worship? And folks, that's always what happens when somebody begins to be convicted. They want to shift attention away from that which makes them uncomfortable. The purpose of her conviction is not just to make somebody uncomfortable, but it's God trying to show them, here's why you need me. But that's the point where so many people try to break and run because they don't like that feeling uncomfortable. They don't assume that God's going to be gracious or merciful in the thing that they just realized is really lousy about themselves. So they try to shift the attention. How many times have we talked to people, tried to tell them about Jesus, and all of a sudden they start getting on some doctrinal or religious thing? Well, this religion says that, that religion says the other thing. What about the contradictions in the Bible? All this kind of stuff. Everything is just smoke and mirrors trying to get away from what God's trying to do on the inside of them. So she said, what about this where to worship thing? Our fathers worshiped here in this mountain, and you say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you know not. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, notice what he says. He starts off by saying, it's not a matter of where, it's not a matter of here, it's not a matter of Jerusalem. The time's coming where it's not going to be either place. Now, salvation is of the Jews. It was given first to the Jews. That's why Jacob had something to do with this. That's why Jesus must needs go through Samaria, because these are people that are still descendants of Abraham. And Jesus is responsible and and owes them the right to come to know who he is just as much as he does to the Jews that are religious and living in Judea. But then he continues. He didn't put her down. He just says, that's not the point. But then he says, but the hour cometh, verse 23, and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Verse 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must. Here's another must. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, spirit is from the heart, isn't it? When he says spirit, isn't he talking about the spirit of man? Worship in the spirit, it means worship from the heart. Truth is identified as the word of God. In other words, he's not talking about worship services. He's not talking about the ways that we do church in our congregations or their synagogues or anything else. He's talking about the way you live your life. He's talking about the way you live your life. Now, folks, you you got to realize the only people that worship are people that are saved. I mean, you can talk about worshiping idols and stuff like that. But that's not worship. That's just ritualism stuff. Same thing the Jews were doing with the law of Moses. It wasn't from their heart. The Bible says over and over and over again in the Old Testament, these, worship, these people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Well, then what is that? Nothing. Just going through the motions. Worship, Jesus says, worship is something that comes from the inside. Worship is something that's from the spirit of man. Well, how do we contact or how do we identify the spirit of man? There's only one thing that feeds or fits your spirit, and that's the word of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Just like bread is food for the natural body, the word of God is food for your spirit. So you can't worship God other than living by the word from your spirit. He's talking lifestyle. He's not talking church services. He's talking lifestyle. He's talking about presenting your body a living sacrifice. He's talking about renewing your mind to the word. Paul tells us some of these things. He identifies it for us after we got saved, after the church comes into being, and we can understand spiritual things a little better. That's what he's talking about. They that worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Notice her progression. She goes from questions to now a little bit of information. She says, okay, I want that living water. 
Then Jesus talks to her about her conscience, about her husband, her lifestyle. And she said, I perceive you're a prophet. Now she's coming in little by little. Now she says, well, I know about Messiah. I know that when Messiah has come, the Christ has come, he's going to tell us all the things that we need to know. And Jesus answers and says in verse 26, I that speak unto thee am he. Folks, this idea that Jesus went through the, 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 the world, he went through life during his three years of ministry hiding who he was, that's just baloney. Jesus told Nicodemus flat out, I am the Son of God. He told her flat out, I am the Messiah. It's not like he left this up to for people to choose on their own. It's not like he left it up for them to decide, is he, is he not? He told them. He went to Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, and he said, these scriptures about the Messiah are fulfilled today in your ears. It's me. He's telling everybody who he is. That's why when they rejected him, it was such a rejection. It's them knowing straight up he says he's the Messiah. We refuse to accept it. He was examined by the Jews and offered up as a sacrifice. Rejected as the Messiah, offered up as the sacrifice for Israel. So Jesus said, I am he, I that speak unto thee here am he. Verse 27, and upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no man said, what seekest thou or why talkest thou with her? In other words, they were afraid to open their mouths. They can't figure out what he, a Jew, is doing talking to her. That was her question in the beginning. Verse 9, what are you, a Jew, talking to me for? They're saying, Jesus, what are you doing talking to her? But they're thinking it. They won't say it. Notice what happens. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man which told me all the things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, Master, eat. That's what they went into town for. We went to get you food. At least eat some. I think Jesus just sent him away to get him out of the, out of the way. Can you imagine what would have happened if Jesus is trying to talk to this woman with them around? What a mess that would have been. But he said unto them, verse 32, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore the disciples said one to another, has any man brought him something to eat? Did he get something to eat while we were gone? See, they're a lot sharper than the woman at the well. Can you see? They're a lot more spiritually astute and in tune. Jesus said unto him, no, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now, what is the will of him that sent me? To reach Gentiles, to reach people that you think aren't worthy. To reach everybody, in other words. Verse 35, don't say, say not ye, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the Samaritans. He's talking about the enemies of the Jews. He's saying they're part of the precious fruit of the earth that I want too. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and you are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans, after he finishes talking to his disciples, many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. Now, folks, uh, I'm not going to express an opinion about this because my opinion doesn't count one way or the other, but I'm going to tell you what a lot of theologians believe about this verse of Scripture, where it says they, they besought him to stay with him and he bowed there two days. Obviously, clearly this is talking about Jesus' time with the Gentiles. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 or 9, I'm not sure which one it is, says, Know this truth, that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Many, if not most, theologians Accept this scripture to mean the day of the Gentiles, the age of the Gentiles, the church age is going to be a 2,000 year period and then Jesus is coming back. Otherwise, why is John telling us he stayed there for two days? John gets real specific about the first day, the next day, the third day. He never tells us anything more about than, than three days. He uses two different examples, chapter 2 and now chapter 4, where he talks about twos and three days. Why is that? It's got to mean something. Is it coincidental that that could mean, could be connected with something that Peter said 
after John gets the revelation that we know of as the book of Revelation. We don't know which one of the books was written first. We do have to assume that they were both written at the same time or around the same time. It's very possible that John had already received the revelation of Jesus that we know of as the last book of the Bible before he ever writes this gospel. It may have something to do with why he emphasizes so much Jesus reaching people individually. We don't know. It's possible. It's worth considering, huh? Now, after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. I read uh, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 15. I'm going to go back to Matthew chapter 4 and and, uh, read a little bit more, verses 12 through 16. It says, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zabulon and Ephthalim, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Now, the reason that he goes back into Galilee is to fulfill Isaiah's saying. That's the point I want you to get. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and the shadow of death, light is sprung up. So it says, after two days, verse 43, back to John chapter 4. After two days he departed thence and went into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. That's what Jesus said in Nazareth. That tells us uh, Matthew, or I'm sorry, uh, Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 4 both tell us the story of Jesus in Nazareth. So what that means is, even though John doesn't give us that account, he's telling us time frames. That's already taken place. He's already been there once. And they tried to kick him out of his own hometown, tried to throw him off the brow of the hill, remember? So that's already happened. It says, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem. Notice what it says. The Nazarenes didn't. Those that were of the city of Nazareth never did accept Jesus. But there were others in the region of Galilee that had been in Jerusalem at the time of the feast when he did all the miracles that caused other people to believe on him. And they're the ones that received him in there, in, uh, in this region. Having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Verse 46. Now, the, this, uh, these last, uh, what, 12 verses, we'll run through them pretty quick. It's the nobleman's son, uh, the healing of the nobleman's son. Now, notice that it tells us where he was, and we have to ask ourselves why. Why does John tell us that he went back to Cana of Galilee? Notice it says, Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine. Where he made the water. Why would John tell us that? There's got to be a reason. I mean, he could tell us that he was anywhere. Why does it matter that he was there? The fact that he tells us that it was Cana where he made the water wine tells us that he's trying to compare. He wants us to see those two miracles, those two events side by side. And there are so many similarities to the nobleman's son being healed and Jesus turning the water into wine. I'll go through a couple of them. We don't want to turn this into healing school. We take this apart a lot of times when we're in healing school and we talk about the ins and outs. But I want to let's just kind of brush it with take it with a broad brush or broad strokes. Let's start reading again in verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said unto him, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, let me point out a couple of the similarities. You remember Jesus turned the water into wine. His mother comes to him and says, we're out of wine. Jesus rebukes her and says, woman, what do I have to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. In this situation, the nobleman comes and says, Jesus, come down to my house and touch my son. You come down. Your presence is required for my son because he's at the point of death. Come down and heal him. Jesus rebukes him. He says, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What's the next thing that happens? Well, here it says that the father answered him. The nobleman, verse 49, said unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Now, here's what I want you to see in the similarities here. When Jesus rebuked his mother and said, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. She turns to the servants and says, Whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Whatever he says to do, do it. She accepted the rebuke and recognized that obedience to his word would bring about whatever supernatural results Jesus decided. Not her. She's already been put on notice. You don't control this. 
What's the nobleman doing? He's trying to control it himself. He's trying to say, it has to be like this. You've got to come down to my house. Jesus said, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What does that mean? That means he's, it's Jesus saying, without seeing signs and wonders, you won't turn this over to me completely. You want to see the physical evidence before you believe anything. And how often is that the case with people in healing? They want to see something and then they'll believe. Jesus is saying it doesn't work that way because faith is required to activate the power of God and you're not willing to believe before you see. Can you see it? He still doesn't understand. He says, sir, come down to my house or else my child is going to die. What does Jesus do? He does the same thing that he did when he turned the water into wine. He spoke the word and it was faith that was acted on based on what he said that brought miraculous results. That's why John is showing us these two things side by side. He's showing us that among the Gentiles, particularly, you know, there, there are three or four. Uh, we're not exactly sure on some cases, so we can say with certainty that there are at least three. There might be more, but there are at least three cases where Jesus ministered to the Gentiles, ministered healing to the Gentiles. And interestingly, every one of them were done at a distance. The centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8. He came to Jesus. Jesus was going to go to his house because he had bestowed a favor upon the Jews by building him a synagogue. He said, I'm not worthy that you come to my house. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Jesus says, wow. Haven't seen this kind of faith in Israel. Be it unto you according to your will. His son was, or his servant was healed. Another time was the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus wouldn't even talk to her to begin with. Finally, he said, it's not right to take the children's bread. Healing belongs to the Jews. It's part of the Jews' covenant. Healing, uh, it's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. He's saying, my covenant doesn't extend to you. God cares about you, but for the time being, I'm ministering to the Jews. That's in Matthew's gospel, and he had not yet turned from the Jews to the Gentiles. It's in the first half. So he's saying, the covenant doesn't extend to you at this point. And she said, well, truth, the Lord, yet the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. And her daughter was healed from that moment. Now here's a situation where you've got a nobleman. He can't be a Jew. There are no noblemen of Jews among the Jews. No such thing. There are the rulers of the Jews, meaning the religious leaders. But there's no such thing as a nobleman among the Jews. The fact that it identifies him as a nobleman means he is a Gentile. He's a person of authority in the Gentile kingdom. Probably a Roman uh, Roman uh, protectorate or something like that. I don't know, some office that they have. So when this nobleman says, come down to, uh, or else my child will die, Jesus then gives him the opportunity to put something in action before he sees results, and that's called faith. So Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Can I ask you a question? How hard was it for this guy to go from, I got to see first before I believe, to, okay, I'll take you at your word? It's almost an instantaneous thing. So many people think they can't believe unless they see something. Sure they can. It's a choice. You can believe anything you want to believe whether it's true or whether it's a lie. You believe according to what you choose to believe. He just flipped the choosing switch. Jesus said, go your way and your son lives. Now, from the language, it's hard to determine whether he's saying. It's hard to determine whether he's saying, go your way and your son will live, or if he's saying, go your way, your son's okay. There's no way to tell from the language which one of those it is. Either way, he makes the choice to believe. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of the hour, them the hour when he began to amend. So it means he didn't get well instantly, did it? You don't begin to amend with an instant healing. He began to get better, in other words. And he asked, What hour did he begin to get better? And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, that would be one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. You know what's interesting about this? Where this guy is, Capernaum, or I'm sorry, he's at Cana. He lives in Capernaum. That's a four-hour walk. If it's the seventh hour on one day, that means one o'clock in the afternoon, why is it the next day before he meets the servant coming? What's he been doing overnight? What's he been doing for that period of time? Why didn't he, why didn't he sprint home? 
to see his son. What's he been doing? He's been staying where Jesus was. He believed the word. And when you believe, there's no need to hurry. No need to rush. He stuck around where Jesus was. Then when he gets around to going back home, he meets the servants on the road. They said, your son's okay. He said, when did he start to get better? Yesterday at one o'clock. Well, that was just the time he was talking to Jesus and Jesus said, go your way, your son lives. Finally, verse 54. This again, this is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Is this the second miracle of Jesus' ministry? Nope. It's the second miracle that Jesus did among the Gentiles. John is showing us. He's trying to identify to the world. Because again, as I said, there is no nation of Israel anymore at this point in time that this is written. It's just like it is now. I'm not too concerned about the Jews trying to mess up the gospel that I preach. It's not an issue. It wasn't an issue when John wrote this gospel. And so what is he doing? He's trying to identify to anybody and everybody that will hear that Jesus was the Son of God sent for the world, not for the Jews, sent for the world. And what does he do? He shows us again and again and again how Jesus reached people. Just like this miracle, just like the woman uh, or just like the, uh, the water turned to wine, the miracle occurred because somebody believed the word. What is John trying to emphasize? He's trying to emphasize that faith in the word that Jesus spoke, the words that Jesus gave us. But remember, they also have all the letters that we know of as the New Testament then. The letters that are given by the Holy Ghost inspired through Paul, through Peter, and now through him. Acting on the word will bring miraculous results. That's the point that he's trying to make. And he's saying, this isn't new. This is the same way that it worked in Jesus' ministry. Oh, thank God for the Word. Thank God for the Word. So many people are looking for a miracle. All you got to do is believe the Word and you can have one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your Word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for the revelation that comes through the Word of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you care for the individual. You didn't just come to preach to the multitudes. You came to reach people. Nicodemus came to you because he had questions. He had religious questions. But you went out, you sought out the woman at the well because you cared about her. She had made a mess of her life, but you went to tell her there's nothing too hard for you. There's nothing that keeps someone away from your mercy and your forgiveness. Thank you, Father, that that's still true. Help us, Father to have the attitude that Jesus wanted his disciples to have, to recognize that the harvest truly is great and people are ready to receive. Help us by the Holy Ghost to be instruments, to be used of God to bring them into the kingdom. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.